just totally gets what we've been talking about, that we are all called to be servants, that we are all called to be ministers. And she just understands that in such a wonderful way. Be committed. And that's what we've been talking about, being committed in this series, being committed to the things that the scriptures talk about, specifically in our church, being committed to a life of generosity, being committed to growing, to transforming in your faith, being committed to being engaged, to serving other people. And this morning, those are kind of the tenets of our mission statement. We're actually going to look at the mission statement itself. Our mission statement says, connecting people to Jesus and each other. Kind of seven simple words. But this morning, I want to just focus, as we talk about our mission statement, the first half of that, connecting people to Jesus. You know, Jesus speaks very specifically to us about our mission at the end of the book of Matthew when he gives us what is called, or what we call the Great Commission. And this is at the end of Jesus' life on earth. It's after his resurrection, but it's before his ascension. And at the end of the book of the Gospel of Matthew, he kind of calls his followers together. And this is what he says. Here's the assignment. This isn't a suggestion. We're not brainstorming here. This is not an optional kind of thing that you can plug into your life. This is not a good idea. It's an assignment. Here's the commission, he says. This is what I want you to do. And he begins in verse 19 and he says, therefore go. So here's the command right off the bat. It's a command to us. And he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the end of the age. This passage... It's the focal point of the New Testament. You know, you can have all kinds of Bible knowledge. You can know all kinds of facts about the Bible. But it is not an exaggeration to say, if you don't grasp this passage, you are missing the point. This passage is the mission that magically many Christians do not seem to understand or don't want to fulfill. It seems kind of obvious sometimes that many Christians have forgotten the mission. They come to services and they feel, fulfill their needs. They take what they want. They serve in certain capacities, maybe to fulfill their own needs or make them feel good about themselves. And they just kind of get a little taste of Jesus. They seem to be oblivious to the fact, the mission that God has called us. So he gives us this assignment. 
this mission, this commission. I want you to notice something this morning that I think is really important in this passage. I'm going to kind of emphasize something to you. It's the word commission. It's actually co-mission. Meaning that Jesus just didn't say to his followers, here's what I want you to do. Good luck with that. I'll see you in a few millennia. That's not what he says here. He says, here's the commission. And then he tells us, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. So it's a commission. It's a mission that we do with God. We're invited to join God on this mission. It's our assignment. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what he wants you to do. But he doesn't ask us to do it alone. As individuals, he makes the promise to be with us. And to the church, he promises the church that he's going to be with them. So something like we kind of did last week, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say to them, the Great Commission is for you. Go ahead. Start and tell them that. The Great Commission is for you. All y'all do is say it and turn back around. That's awesome. I want to invite your attention this morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. That's kind of, we're looking at the Great Commission, but we're going to jump over to Matthew, chapter 9, and that's going to kind of be our text this morning. Very similar thoughts. Of course, all the scripture will be on the screen behind me. I just kind of want to give you the context of what's going on. As you get to the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is kind of concluding the part of his ministry, so to speak, where he's been giving his credentials on why he is the Messiah. That's what he's been talking about. Why kind of his credentials for being the Messiah. Why he is the Messianic authority. And then when you get to chapter 10, which is coming up next, of course, begins the kind of the public ministry of his disciples. And it's like, okay, guys, you've been with me, and now it's time for me to send you out. Well, verses 35 and following here are kind of the bridge between those two thoughts. The Messianic, I'm the Messiah, kind of my credentials, and then sending out the disciples is sort of the bridge between them. And so that's kind of where we're going to settle down this morning is looking at that. So they've been traveling with Jesus, the disciples have. They've been, you know, working together, traveling together. They've been together. And they're all kind of in this huddle together. And he's getting ready to send them out. And so we start in verse 35, and it reads like this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus tells his disciples, 
The harvest is great, but there's not a lot of laborers to bring the harvest in. What happens when you have a harvest and you can't get it in? I mean, things go south, don't they? I mean, that's not a good thing. You say, well, there's a harvest, but we can't get enough harvesters. We can't get enough workers out into the harvest fields. So he says, I want you to pray that God will raise some men and women and send them out because the harvest is great. Of course, he's talking spiritually here, not an actual fruit, vegetable kind of harvest. And he says, every, you know, basically he said, everywhere you look, God is at work. And he needs those who are willing to serve, those that are willing to be part of the harvest. The harvest is great in the spiritual sense, but there's not enough workers. So this morning, I want to challenge you to recognize that the harvest is all around you. It's at your workplace. It's in your schools and your colleges. It's in your neighborhood. It's probably in your family. And God has placed you in a field somewhere. And there's a harvest that is taking place. And there is a challenge to be part of that harvest. And the first thing I want you to notice when he begins to talk about the harvest here is that we need to see people the way Jesus saw people. If we're going to work, if we're going to have God work through us, we need to see people the way Jesus saw people. It says in verse 36, when Jesus saw, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I just want to challenge you with that prayer. Just that prayer to say, God, let me see people the way you see people. Let me see them the way you look at them. When Jesus saw the crowd, notice he wasn't annoyed. He didn't see them as a hindrance, as we talked about last week. He didn't see them as an interruption. The Bible said he had compassion on them. This word compassion could probably even be better translated. He had deep compassion on them. There are a number of different words that mean compassion in the Greek language. This is the, the deepest of those. This is the one that is the most intense. It's the strongest of all of them. It means a deep sense of empathy. This is not feeling sorry for someone for a few moments and then your mind moves on. This is not like what happens to us a lot of times. We pull up to a corner in our car and there's a homeless person there. Or they tell us they're homeless anyway. And, and, you, and your mind kind of goes out to them and you feel sorry for them. But as soon as you get around the corner, you've kind of forgotten about them. That's not the kind of compassion that Jesus is talking about here. This compassion is like a parent standing next to a child in a hospital bed who is struggling to breathe. That's the kind of compassion that Jesus feels when he looks out and he sees the crowd. The disciples, I think they struggled with this kind of compassion. 
I think we as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, we struggle with this too. I mean, we look at the disciples and they oftentimes saw people as kind of an annoyance. And as you kind of trace through the Gospels, you kind of see this over and over. Just in the book of Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 14. and There's this great crowd that's gathered to hear Jesus teach. It's getting late in the day and the people are getting restless. They're getting hungry. They're getting angry. They want something to eat. And the disciples are like, Jesus, just send them off. Just go let them find some food somewhere. And Jesus says, no, no. We're going to take care of them. We're going to feed them. Very next chapter, chapter 15, a Canaanite woman comes and she's crying out to Jesus because her daughter is suffering. Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering. And she keeps crying out. And Jesus doesn't respond at first. But then in verse 22 it says, Then the disciples urge Jesus, Send her away. She is bothering us with all her begging. And it's almost like Jesus was waiting for that, and that's why he had responded to her, because he wanted to teach his disciples a lesson here. And so then he stops, and he gives his attention to her, and he talks to her, and he heals her daughter. You keep on reading and go over to Matthew chapter 19, and people are bringing their children to Jesus. So that Jesus would put his hands on them and pray for them and bless them. And the disciples are like, hey, y'all, Jesus is busy. We don't have time for this. What is it Jesus says? No, bring these little children to me. The disciples are like us sometimes. They don't want to be bothered. bothered. They're looking for shortcuts. You know, there's an interesting new term in our society for shortcuts. It's the word hack. How many of you are familiar with the word hack? If you go online, there's all kinds of hacks. They're like shortcuts for doing things. So basically, a hack is a shortcut for doing something. So I found a really interesting one. It's a shortcut for making grilled cheese. Anybody seen this? You take your toaster and you turn it on its side. I think we have a picture here. So you turn your toaster. No picture? Not of that. Not of that? Okay, there was a picture. <laughs> but anyway, you can imagine it anyway. You take your toaster and you turn it on its side. And then you take the, your bread and your cheese and you put a slice in each part of your toaster. And then you toast them and then you bring them out and you put the pieces together. And so that's this, this new hack, and it seems like a really good idea, right? Well, you start reading the comment section, no, it's not a good idea. There have been fires that have been started. I'm serious, fires that have been started. So don't do this. It doesn't work. It might seem like a brilliant idea, but it doesn't work. And then somebody else pointed out that it's really, really hard to get clean cheese out of your toaster. So while it seemed like a great idea to make grilled cheese, it turns out 
that it's not, don't do this. I know some of you are thinking you're going to try this when you get home. If your house burns down, it's not my fault. But you know, that's what we try to do in ministry sometimes. We try to take shortcuts, and it doesn't work. Or we think to ourselves, somebody else will do it. And it doesn't happen. We need to be praying, Jesus, let me see people with your eyes. Jesus, we need help. We're surrounded by a harvest. And you know, sometimes it's hard to pray, let me see people like you see people. I mean, maybe you don't get along with your coworkers. It's hard to pray something like that. Maybe you're very annoyed with your neighbors and it's kind of hard to ask Jesus, let me see them the way you see them. Maybe you don't care for the people you go to school or college with and it's kind of difficult to pray that prayer. I think sometimes, you know, we want to be used and we pray, God, show me the ministry, show me what you want to do. But kind of in the back of our mind, please don't bring any annoying people into my life when you do that. Now, that's, that's not really what I want to do, Jesus. I want to be used, but kind of do it on, on my terms. We used to joke in the camping ministry that we loved camping, but camping would be a lot easier if we didn't have any campers, right? And, uh, of course, we were kidding about it, but I think sometimes that's the way we all kind of approach ministry like that. But ministry is about people and loving people and serving people and seeing people the way Jesus sees people. Let me just share something with you. I'm going to, I'm going to be real honest with you this morning about myself. I love what God has called me to do. And almost most of the time, I mean almost all the time, I love ministry. But I'll be honest with you, just every once in a while, I have one of those days where I'm like, if one more person calls my name, I'm going to scream. God, I, I, just leave me alone, people. And I'm just being honest with you. There are, every blue moon that happens, because I'm just emotionally and spiritually spent. That's not how I want to feel. That's not how I need to feel. But I mean, sometimes you feel a way that you don't want to feel. And I have to kind of repent. And I have to say, God, let me, let me be about people. Let me see people the way that, that you see people. And God, give me the strength I need to do what I need to do today. That needs to be our prayer. Let me see people like you do. The compassion is the crowd here. Notice that in verse 36. The word crowd. It's just a large, unidentified group of people. That's what that means. He doesn't know names. He doesn't know their stories. He doesn't know anything about these people. But he does describe them a little bit. He says he saw they were confused and they were helpless. Don't we live in a world that's full of confusion? This world can be trans this word can be translated as troubled or even harassed. You would think with all the information that exists today, there wouldn't be all this confusion. But yet there's all types of confusion and people have all kinds of Questions, And Jesus says when somebody is confused, there's an opportunity to speak life and truth into them. He says they're helpless. 
He says, these people can't fix things on their own. They're broken. They don't know what to do next. He just looks out on this crowd and he recognizes this. People are confused and people are helpless. And you look at our world. And you look at all the confusion and you look at all the problems that, that people can't fix. And we keep trying to fix them with government regulations or we try to fix them with, with money or, or help or whatever it is. And there's no Jesus in it and it doesn't work. And there's all kinds of violence in our society and there's senseless killings and crime rates are going up and kids are committing suicide. I heard on the news last night. 500-something kids have committed Kids under the age of 10 have committed suicide in the United States so far this year. How does a 10-year-old want to take his life? I have no idea. There's, there are things that are broken in our society. Lots of them. People are confused and they're hurt and they're helpless. And Jesus looks out on the crowd. And I look out on the crowd this morning. You look a little confused. But you know, most of you don't. You don't look helpless. You don't look confused. But we all kind of are, aren't we? And we're all kind of broken. But we put our best, best face on. Like I was telling you a few moments, once in the blue moon, when those kind of things happened to me, you would never know it because I'm going to smile and listen and act like everything's hunky-dory. Would you do the same thing? Look at people's social media pages. It looks like everybody has their act together for the most part. Don't have a care in the world. Because we only kind of show people what we want to, them to see. But Jesus says, see the way people, I want you to see people the way I see people. And we need to recognize that people are hurting and people are helpless and people are confused. And we need to pray, God, how can I be part of fulfilling your mission in people's lives? Psychologists have begun to talk about something that's becoming more and more of an issue. It's called the bystander effect. And this is the phenomenon that happens when you see something go wrong right in front of you, but you don't do anything about it. And it's becoming even more and more prevalent as people are taking pictures and shooting videos with their phones. So an example would be, some of you may remember this, about three years ago in Kansas City, a woman was assaulted in, the, in a parking lot in broad daylight. Ten people witnessed it. Two people recorded it on their phones. Nobody called the police. Nobody intervened. Nobody, or anybody, whatever, did anything. Ten people. Psychologists say it's not that these people are evil or wicked people, but there's this bystander effect that's taking place where we see a need, but we don't recognize ourselves as the responder. That's why you're always taught in an emergency situation, be very specific you know, if you're, if you're in an emergency situation and you need someone to call 911, you need to be very specific. Don't just say, hey, call nine, somebody call 911. Either call somebody out by name or if you don't know their name, you in the blue sweater, call 911. Or else nobody may call 911. Because we see everybody else as the responder. 
we just become a concerned bystander. Yeah, it might bother us. We care, but we're not going to do anything about it. And it just kind of becomes this problem that we're aware of. And they give a couple theories behind what causes the bystander effect. One is the assumption that everybody else will do something. We see a need, we look around. There are a lot of people in this room this morning. Somebody else will do something, but nobody does, so nothing happens. I mean, people look around and they say, well, I mean, yeah, the harvest is plentiful, but look, there are hundreds of people here. I'm sure somebody will do something. You know what the problem is? Lots of people are assuming that someone else will do something. Somebody else will go on the mission trip. Somebody else will preach to the next generation. Someone else will step up and lead. Someone else will minister to the next generation. Someone else will write the new worship songs. A different medical professional will do something. Someone else who has more money than I do will be generous. Someone else will foster a child. Someone else will help with sex trafficking. Someone else will minister a child at school, mentor. Someone else will care for the sick and the poor. I mean, yeah, I recognize it. And it's not that I don't care, but I'm sure somebody else will do something. Another theory is this. The bystander effect is that there's this rationalization of, well, there's not really anything I can do. I mean, I'm not qualified enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. I don't have the resources. But I don't have the connections. It is true for all of us to have this tendency to think, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm pretty busy. Eugene Peterson says the reason a lot of people don't get involved, he calls it the Afghanitis effect. That the re we have this idea that the real opportunities to make a difference take place in far off places in extreme situations, and that just doesn't describe your life. Could that not be more untrue? I mean, we all know deep down that's not true. If we see people the way Jesus sees people, we'll see needs all around us. There are a number of other points that I can make in this passage, but I just want to bring up one more to you. We are to pray for the Lord for harvesters. We pray that the Lord of harvest would raise up workers. Isn't it interesting that he tells us to pray before we go? I think that indicates to us that we are to be dependent on him. If we start praying that prayer, God, would you let me see people the way that you see people? If we start praying that prayer and we can do that, and Romans 10 says that if people hear the message, they will have salvation. But then it goes on to say, but how can they hear unless someone goes? And how can they go unless someone sins? 
So sending seems to be part of going. And that there is someone among us who, who, who has this call and they're willing to go. And folks, we should be lined up behind them, helping them get there. Because it gives us an opportunity to be part of the Great Commission through them. You know, sometimes we give people, we donate money for mission trips, send somebody to the mission field or whatever, and, and we expect a thank you note. And I guess that's kind of how our society is, and I'm not saying it's wrong. But let me kind of flip that for a minute, give you a different way to think about it. Maybe rather than expecting a thank you note, we should give them a thank you note for allowing us to be part of what God is doing in their life. We should send them a thank you note because they are allowing us to be part of their opportunity to be part of the Great Commission from where we're at. And we thank a missionary for the privilege of being able to send them. We owe them the thank you because we are part of fulfilling the Great Commission through them. And I'll just mention something else here. It really frustrates me when people, God gives them a call to go to the mission field and they're willing to go, and yet they have to go around for years begging for money to get there. Now the cooperative program is a little different, and Austin Holcomb talked about that five or six weeks ago, did a great job. But the cooperative program, they're not going to accommodate all missionaries. There's different focuses. The lady you saw on the, on the video, she's not a cooperative program missionary. That, that, the medical thing is not something that they're really doing anymore. So there's all these other mission agencies that do different things. And people have to kind of raise their own funds. And many of them spend four or five years when they could be there just going around begging for money. It shouldn't be like that. We had a family in our own church felt called to go to Scotland sold their house, spent two years just, the, the word is begging for money, and never could get it. And finally, just kind of, maybe we've missed what God wants us to do. I don't know. Maybe they, I can't answer that question. But it just doesn't seem like it should be that way. We ought to be lining up. They had sold their house. They were willing to go. We ought to be supporting them. So as you pray, you, you send and then you can go. I don't remember who I first heard say this, but I heard somebody say, your church shouldn't be known for its seating capacity, but for its sending capacity. I really like that. Now I want to close with this. I was doing some research really early in the week on this bystander effect deal, and I came across something, and uh, don't show it yet. Hold up if you would. And I debated all week whether I wanted to show this picture, because it's kind of disturbing. It really is. But I'm going to show it, because I think sometimes, emotionally, we need to be jolted. Because I'm sure this morning, as soon as I mentioned that we were going to talk about the Great Commission, there were people in this room that went, oh, I've heard 
this stuff before, yeah, 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 yeah. How many times are we gonna hear about the Great Commission? Blah, 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 blah. I know. And we just get desensitized to it. Lots of us do. Go ahead and put that picture up there if you would. This is kind of a disturbing example of the bystander effect. It's the story of Kevin Carter. He was a photojournalist who took pictures. He took this picture in 1994. It showed the human suffering in sub-Saharan Africa during the famine in Sudan. It's tough to look at. I mean, I cannot get that picture out of my mind. It shows a young girl, some of you may have seen this when it first came out. She's weak and she's alone. And she's trying to crawl to an aid station a mile away. And there's that vulture there. And the story is that he kept waiting for the vulture to spread its wings because he felt like that would make a better picture. The vulture never did. He waited for about 20 minutes, he said. And finally, he shoot off the vulture. Something caught his eye and he went to check it out and... Uh, this picture got a lot of attention. And lots of people began to ask, what happened to the girl? What happened to the girl? He said, I don't know. And he got a lot of hate for that. He didn't know, because he didn't help her. And he got all kinds of hate. And he said, you don't understand. It's everywhere over there. The death is everywhere. You don't understand. What am I supposed to do? He won a Pulitzer Prize for that picture. And then he committed suicide because he couldn't live with himself. I'm not judging. That's just the facts. And I know we hear a story like that and you see that picture and it's repulsive and you shake your head and you think, how could you walk off and leave a child like that? One child. Yeah, it's just one. But how can you do that? What's wrong with you? But millions of people saw that picture. What did they do? Are they any less culpable? I mean, how many of those millions of people that were judging sent money or sent AIDS, not aid, sent aid. How many people, how many medical professions, professionals said, you know what? I can give a week of my time. I can give two weeks and make a difference. How many ordinary Joes said, you know what? I'm not a medical professional, but I could carry a child a mile to an aid station. I'm going to go over there. How many? And it's easy to look at other people and say, why don't you do something? But why don't you do something? The need is the sign. Some of you are waiting for a sign from God. God, you know, just give me a sign. Show me a burning bush. The need is the sign. And the needs are everywhere. And the harvest is plentiful. And it's everywhere.
are called to do something. And if you're a Christian, this is not a suggestion. It's a command. And if you're not being obedient, then you're sinning and you need to repent. We are called to fulfill the Great Commission. Would you pray with me?